One of the great knocks on Western Christianity is that our hyper-individualism has eroded our commitment to our cause. The subtle Christian narcissism, and that's why we struggle the issue of discipleship and fulfilling the Great Commission. This is Living a Legacy with Bible teacher Crawford Lawrence. You know, often in life, we're drawn to a movement or a cause that seems to resonate with us. We get on board to support this cause or movement with full effort. But do we have the same drive for the cause of Christ? To propagate the gospel so that it can change someone's life from the inside out. Well, stay with us as Crawford continues in his series, His Church. We're exploring the Apostle Paul's communication with the Church of Colossae, a church he was encouraged by and fully supported in prayer. Now, if you've recently joined us for this weekly teaching program, a big welcome. Crawford has dedicated most of his life to the pastoral teaching of Scripture and the training of Christian leaders. He currently heads the organization Beyond Our Generation, a Christian mentoring ministry. He's the author of such books as Leadership as an Identity, Lessons from a Life Coach, and For a Time We Cannot See. The messages we feature on Living a Legacy come from Crawford's many years as pastor of Fellowship Bible Church of Roswell, Georgia. If you're just joining us for the series, the previous messages can be heard on our website, and I'll have details at the close of our broadcast. Our text is Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 25. Colossians chapter 1, 24 and 25. Here's the first half of Crawford's message, All for His Cause. Let's study together here on Living a Legacy. Just to refresh our memory, the book of Colossians is a companion book to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians talks about uh, the body of Christ, meaning the church. Colossians talks about Christ, the head of his body, the church. Uh, Paul wrote this letter, interestingly enough, it's really kind of unique in this regard because he writes this letter to a church that he never even visited. He never, he never was there. Uh, what happened was his companion and friend in the ministry and colleague uh, Epaphras comes to visit him, Paul's in jail right now, comes to visit Paul and gives Paul this glowing report about this church of Colossae. And Paul is just struck by it. I mean, the Spirit of God just burns the Colossians on his heart, and he starts praying for them regularly. And you would have thought Paul planted the church. He has such a love and affinity for these people. And uh, you, you can tell in the first message that I gave, I entitled What Matters Most, but it was that great prayer that he breaks out at the very beginning of the book where he's praying that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they will experience the dynamic very presence of God. And then he slides into uh, the exaltation of Christ. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The supremacy of Christ. The problem with preaching is that uh, um, it, 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 preaching sometimes a little bit disjointed because I've, I'm going to the next paragraph or, or the next section and I, and I can't always connect it, but I want to encourage you to always connect what I say with what was said before because it gives it context. And so it is with this section that we're going to slide into today. It comes on the heels of, 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 of Paul just giving this amazing magnificat to the, the splendor and preeminence and supremacy of Jesus. No one will ever have these characteristics, and no one ever had this, these characteristics that Jesus has. 
He's in a class all by himself. So now, he gets into this section where we are today. Chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 5, is one section there. After singing the magnificent praises of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus, what Paul now then does is that he, he talks about his own testimony with regard to the cause of Christ. And that he's all in. But I hope we see in a few moments that, that what he's talking about is really what we all, should, as followers of Christ, should be all in on. You know, it's amazing that great athletes have uh, some amazing things in common. No matter what the sport is, if they are a great athlete, if they are at the top of their game, they, they've got some amazing things in common. Uh, whether it is Rory McIlroy or Phil Mickelson or Tiger Woods with, with golf or Serena Williams with tennis or Coco Golf now with tennis or LeBron James in basketball. No, no matter who it is, great athletes have some amazing things in common. And I was thinking about this. It sort of triggered my thinking, and hopefully you'll see the connection. And I, and I just sort of went online and, and Googled in, what do great athletes have in common? And what popped up was uh, this list of 10 things, and I just want to pass them on to you. This is what great athletes give themselves to, and this is what separates them from, you know, the very good high school jock and the one that is out there. And here they are. Let me just list them, 10 things that they have in common. The first one is, is that they persevere. They persevere. Often, often that's the difference. I remember talking to John Smoltz many years ago, and he was telling me, he said, you know, Crawford, talent-wise, there are many pitchers in the minor leagues that was better than me and better than a lot of guys up here talent-wise. But often what makes the difference is not necessarily talent, but the ability to persevere. And so great athletes, they, they, it, it's not just that they just have talents. They've got drive. They persevere. Second thing that they have in, that they have in common is that uh, they are consistent. They're repetitive. You see this in golf. I mean, they hit the shot, hit the shot, hit the shot. They keep doing the same things over and over and over and over and over and over again. Thirdly, they, they improve their weaknesses. They work on them all the time. They're never technically off. No superstar, no great athlete ever is off. In the off-season, they're working on stuff that they think they can get a little bit better at. Fourthly, I guess it goes with the third one, they prioritize training. They're there. Jerry Rice, when he was playing, was notorious. For he, he would be the first one at practice before anybody showed up running up and down the stadium steps, and he would be the last one to leave. They were committed to training. Um, they adopt, it's <laughs> not a nice way of saying it, but it's true. Every great athlete has this, well, you call it a killer instinct. They have a warrior mentality. I have met some outstanding Christians who are in pro sports, and they are different people when you're talking to them in the locker room, but something happens to them when they step across that line. There, there, is, there, is, there is not just a winning thing. They want to win to the max. 
They've got this thing in them. They work toward a goal. They set goals not just to the limits of their abilities, but a little bit beyond. So they drive toward it. Um, they refresh themselves. And the great athletes, they do have windows in their lives, and they do understand that rest also is a part of their development and training. And so they refresh themselves. They are confident. You can't win anything apart from confidence. Now, there's a difference between being confident and cocky. There's a difference between confidence and arrogance. Every great athlete, even the most godly of them, they're confident in the abilities that God gave them. And in the words of the great theologian, Ray Charles, they make it do what it do. And uh, so they are confident. He actually did say that. Uh, they build on the basics. They build on the basics. They have mastered the fundamentals. The fundamentals to them are like breathing. Throw the ball, hit the ball, catch the ball. Throw the ball, hit the ball, catch the ball. Throw the ball, hit the ball, catch the ball. Throw the ball, hit the ball, catch the ball. They master the basics. It's ingrained in them. And then finally, they have a plan. You know, Tiger Woods is actually notorious for this. He, 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 whenever he's interviewed, and if he's won, you always hear him make this statement. And I, and I like this about him. He'll make this statement. He said, well, you know, what about your competition? Did you look at the leaderboard, this kind of thing? Of course, he looked at the leaderboard. He kind of sort of doesn't say, but he, of course, he looked. But he, he says, no, I just figured that if I stick to my business, I'd be fine. If I stick to my business, I'd be fine. You have a plan. You have a plan. Now, what I've described here, and I don't mean to sound like some locker room coach here, but what I've described here is the passion that we ought to own when it comes to the cause of Christ. One of the great knocks on Western Christianity is that our hyper-individualism has eroded our commitment to our cause. That there is, and you've heard me say this before, there is this subtle Christian narcissism where Christianity is all defined by me, and that's why, that's why we struggle, we struggle with the issue of discipleship and we struggle with the issue of fulfilling the Great Commission. Because that commission is beyond myself, it requires more of me than sometimes I'm willing to give. And this is what Paul is driving at here. And I, I would suggest to you that in these verses, no, no, the word discipleship is not used. But this is one of the best exposition on biblical discipleship you'll find anywhere in the Bible. And that's why Paul is writing and giving his testimony after assailing the incredible virtues of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus. It's almost as if he's saying, well, why wouldn't I be all in on the cause? And so in his testimony, He's also vicariously speaking for every Christian. And I think his thoughts can be, um, flows through these, these two big ideas. One is, what the cause of Christ does in me for others. And then secondly, what the cause of Christ does through me for others. But notice, 
cause of Christ for others, what it does in me for others, and then what it does through me for others. And actually, our marching orders, they're given to us, and I promise you I'm going to get to the text. Our marching orders, they're given to us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And I'll just quote verse 19 and a little bit of the following. It says, go therefore, actually it's a circumstantial participle, could have been translated, while or as you're going, make disciples of all the nations. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, and teaching them all that I commanded you. That your, your, your whole perspective as a follower of Christ is missional. So let's take a look at the text. Paul says, this is what the cause of Christ should do in us for, for others. The very first thing that should be produced in us is a heart and a passion for his cause. Verse uh, 24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now, this is a little bit of a controversial text. There's some scholars that say, whoa, back up a little bit. What is he saying here that somehow or another, this line that says that, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Is he saying that somehow or another Christ's afflictions were not adequate? That his suffering was not sufficient? No, that's not what he's saying at all. Because he could not be saying that because of other statements that he's made in his writings. Paul's not saying that Christ's sufferings was inadequate. What he, what he is saying is that he, and by means of implication, we had the privilege of demonstrating to a watching world what it really means to suffer for the sake of Christ. Not in some ostentatious way, but we identify with him. And it's not something to run from. It is a heart privilege to identify with his sufferings. And given the context, remember, Paul is writing this letter from jail. He's writing, and you know why, why he got put in jail? He got put in jail because of the gospel. He got put in jail for preaching Christ. And so, as he would say in Philippians 1.29, for you it is given on behalf of Christ to not only believe in his name, but also suffer for his sake. And what Paul is saying is that this is a joy. This is a privilege for me to be able to identify with my Savior. Now, I'm not suggesting that, you know, you know we look to be beaten up and we look to be thrown in jail and we look for suffering However, what I am saying is that don't move away from that too far. It is a privilege to suffer for his sake. And what Paul is saying, look, I, I, don't feel sorry for me. For if this is what it takes to honor and glorify Christ and to fulfill his mission, my heart has lined up to it. If this is what it's going to take to advance the cause of Christ, if this and God's sovereignty, I didn't ask for this, I don't want to be in jail. 
But if this in God's sovereignty is where I am going to be, well, I'm not going to be sitting over the corner in a fetal position bemoaning my circumstances and getting all depressed because God has called me to be here. And since he's called me to be here, I get the privilege of glorifying Christ and identifying with him and his suffering and to pass it on. Most of us in Western Christianity have a woefully inadequate theology of suffering. And yet it's part of it. It's part of being committed to the cause. Whatever I have to do for God to maximally advance what he wants to get done in and through my life to fulfill his great commission, Paul says, I'm all in. I'm all in. It's my heart. It's a, it's a privilege to do these things. But he also underscores his calling. So as he writes this church, he says, I just need to let you know a little bit more about me. I know that Epaphras probably told you some, but I just want you to know more about who I am and what I'm called to do and what you are hooked up with. And so he says here in verse 26, he underscores the calling. He says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let me explain here a little bit about what mystery is. The word mystery obviously has to do with that which was hidden in the past and is now revealed. Now, I'm going to make a statement that, that uh, I have friends and colleagues who are in another camp. They, they would say that the church was in the Old Testament. That's the camp that they're in. I disagree with them. I disagree with them because the church is not in the Old Testament. And this is the mystery that Paul is referring to, the mystery that was hidden. hidden. You see, the church, the church began with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is what the church mirrors. That's why in Romans 6, we talk about our baptism into his death. And that imagery is used of the church, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is a resurrected Christ that is leading his church. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked into, into that too much. And so the mystery that he's talking about here is the church. But more specifically, he's talking about what is, uh, who is in the church. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, the in you there has to do with the body. The body there, Colossae. And hang on, you've heard me say this here before. One of the most incredibly remarkable things about all the churches in the New Testament is that there's not one church in the New Testament that's not multi-ethnic. Not one. And so he's saying here that, uh, and he would later on here read Ephesians 2, and I guess you could get later on in chapter 2 here in Colossians, he talks about the middle wall of partition has been broken down. This is what Jesus did in his death. He say, he'll be famous, he say here, as well as over in Galatians, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, Gentile, bond or free, for we're all one in Christ. Who's in the midst of his church? Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
And see, this is the essence. Now, hear me on this. Hear me on this. This is at the core of the Great Commission. Often when I heard messages preached on the Great Commission at missions conference and this kind of thing, they overlooked this incredible emphasis. When Jesus says, make disciples of all the nations, he's not just talking about geography. The Greek word for nations is ethnos. We get the English transliteration ethnic from that which means peoples. From the very beginning, the heart of God was to penetrate every ethnic group, every people group around the world. And that's who we're making disciples. So back to Colossians. He says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's the one that's pulled all of this together. You've got Jews and Gentiles in your congregation. You've got wealthy people and poor people in your congregation. You've got slaves and free folks in your congregation. What pulls them together? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That same Jesus that I talked about as being supreme has pulled it all together. And that's core. And see, this is practical stuff. This is practical stuff here. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't step past white folks just to share the gospel with people my color who will respond. And I hope you don't step past black folks or Asians or anybody else. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that's the nature of the Great Commission. And Paul said, that's my calling. And you need to know what I'm giving my life for. You need to realize that. I'm not playing some little pragmatic growth game. We're all about transformation. We're all about people coming to Jesus and multiplying the impact and influence in their lives. So there's this heart and then there's this calling. But then in verses 28 and 29, he underscores this passionate pursuit. Crawford Loritz here on Living a Legacy, and we'll pick it up right there next week with Paul's passionate pursuit of the Savior. All for the Cause, the title of today's message. It's part of Crawford's series, His Church, based on the book of Colossians. We're getting great insights from the Apostle Paul on how we as the church should relate to our Lord and to each other. If you missed out on part of today's message, you can stream all of it on our website. Go to livingalegacy.org, look for the link Past Programs. There's also a link to connect you with our MP3 library containing many of Crawford's messages, including our recent series on the Holy Spirit, titled Supernatural. Now, they can all be downloaded there for free. Start with livingalegacy.org. And speaking of Crawford's series on the Holy Spirit, here's a recent email from Jamie. Thank you for this series on being led by the Spirit. It was a timely reminder that if we are children of God, we will be led. It encouraged me to look deeper at what the Holy Spirit is doing and how He's moving in my life. I'm also really enjoying all of the other messages by Pastor Crawford Loretz. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you so much, Jamie, for taking the time to let us know. And we'd like to hear from you, too. Remember, when you connect with us, you help ensure that this broadcast continues to be heard right here. Look for the contact link at livingalegacy.org. Well, next week, the second half of Crawford's message, All for the Cause, and we'll look for you again right here. For Crawford Loritz, I'm Bill Davis. Thanks for listening. This program is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.